If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My guest this week is the chairman of the 1922 committee and conservative member of parliament for Altrincham and Sale West, Sir Graham Brady. Sir Graham, thank you for coming on the show. It was a pleasure. Nice to see you. Now, before we discuss some of the lockdown restrictions that are still in place at the moment, I want to ask you about some of the ongoing events in Afghanistan. And the situation has seriously deteriorated in recent days. What are your thoughts on what's happening at the moment and the current evacuation efforts? Well, obviously, it's an impressive effort to evacuate in very difficult circumstances. But the tragedy is that the uh, difficulty of those circumstances was avoidable. And uh, clearly a more uh, measured, uh, better planned uh, drawdown of troops, uh, leaving the Afghan forces in a position to keep control of the country uh, would have been far preferable. And you know, I, I just think over the last few years, where really the US and coalition forces uh, in Afghanistan haven't been actively engaged as a, a combat units, they've mostly been there training and facilitating the Afghan forces, has actually been a very effective uh, effort, uh, which did a, a remarkably good job. Uh, and it's been quite shocking to see the uh, speed with which the withdrawal of that support has uh, led to the Afghan forces simply uh, collapsing. And it's clear that the, the sense of feeling from your colleagues across the House of Commons is that the blame for this rapid deterioration lies with President Biden. How do you think the special relationship between the UK and the US has been affected by the withdrawal? Well, I, I think that clearly it was uh, a US-led uh, decision. Uh, the uh, decision to withdraw U.S. Uh, forces had been taken by President Trump, uh, but then uh, supported by the new President Biden. Uh, the uh, pace of the withdrawal and the failure to uh, maintain order and control uh, while it was taking place, I, I think clearly uh, is something for which the current administration uh, bears responsibility. Uh, the relationship between the United Kingdom and the United States is a critically important one, uh, and it's one that we have to maintain and keep in good shape. Uh, so, you know, I, I think obviously this is an unfortunate uh, episode. It's unfortunate that the United Kingdom wasn't able to persuade President Biden to handle this uh, differently. I understand that the uh, British government was urging 
uh, the Americans to uh, withdraw more slowly. Uh, and uh, they didn't pay heed to what we were requesting. Let, let's move on to look at something a, a little bit closer to home, and that's the, the current COVID-19 restrictions that are still in place. Now, we, we were told on the 19th of July that that would be our Freedom Day, but a number of the regulations still remain in place today. What do you see as the reasoning for this when the infection and death rates around the virus seem to be at a fairly stable rate at the moment? I, I think there's an awful lot of uh, inertia. I think when... Uh, any government uh, takes uh, a huge amount of control and power over the population. There's always a danger uh, that uh, that, the, that government will want to hold on to some of those powers, the, that control that it's taken. Uh, and this is always a danger right from the outset when uh, Parliament granted the government emergency powers uh, initially, when we were being told it was for a three-week uh, lockdown uh, in uh, late March 2020. And that lockdown went on for three months, not three weeks. We had three lockdowns. Many of us, uh, my constituents here in Altrincham, had uh, also very heavy restrictions uh, in place from the summer of last year as well. So uh, for large parts of the British public, we were under very intense restrictions for almost uh, the whole of that sort of 15, 16 month period. Most of the restrictions have now gone, but the emergency powers uh, remain. And I think that is a concern if, as I expect, the government comes back and seeks to extend the Emergency Coronavirus Act uh, for uh, a third time uh, to take it up for a full two year period, uh, that would be a uh, cause for serious concern. Uh, the government's rhetoric, and indeed the rhetoric of the medical and scientific advisors to government, is that we have to recognise that COVID-19 is now an endemic virus. It's something with which we have to live. Uh, now, when we are finding a way to live with uh, a virus, that surely has got to be for uh, all of us as individuals to make our own judgments. What level of risk uh, we find acceptable. Government uh, can give uh, the best advice. Uh, it's done a good job in making sure that there is a, a good supply of vaccines, that more vulnerable people uh, generally being vaccinated. Uh, so the level of risk uh, from the virus has been greatly reduced. Uh, we now need to make that big sort of paradigm shift uh, back from a world in which people sit waiting for uh, Boris Johnson or for, well, it's no longer Matt Hancock, but um, uh, for uh, Sajid uh, to make uh, decisions for them about what they can do in their lives. We've got to move back to a world where we have responsibility for our own lives, make decisions for ourselves and our own families. And you, you mentioned that the, the government does want to move to a position where we are living with the virus, but one of the aspects of the policy at the moment is to introduce a domestic vaccine passport for certain venues to access certain venues. Do you agree with this measure? No, I don't. And you know, I think it's, it's both wrong in principle to have uh, an approach which is so discriminatory uh, as a vaccine passport would be. Uh, it's also entirely senseless. All of the evidence now suggests that whilst the vaccines are very effective, in stopping the people who are vaccinated uh, from becoming seriously ill with COVID. Uh, the evidence is also that 
the vaccines don't stop people from becoming infected or from passing the infection on. So uh, there's no reason to believe that uh, simply requiring people to be vaccinated to go to certain settings uh, would uh, contain uh, the uh, rate of infection or transmission of COVID. If the vaccine passports are uh, made mandatory for certain venues, and a number of your colleagues in the House of Commons, and particularly in the Conservative Party, have been very vocal in their opposition to, towards this, as, as you have been. But based on that, would, would you be following a number of your colleagues in Parliament in, in boycotting the party conference in Manchester in five weeks' time if this is introduced? Uh, well, we still don't know uh, what the Conservative Party's policy mm. is in relation to the conference. And, you know, as chairman of the United States Steel Committee, I sit on the board of the Conservative Party. But uh, when, when I asked whether there would be an expectation of vaccination for attending the conference, I, I as yet have had no uh, response. So my assumption is that they won't take that action, that people will be able to attend the conference, uh, whether they are vaccinated or not. Uh, as I've said, all of the logic and the evidence suggests that there's really no reason to have vaccine passports. Hopefully that will uh, have been accepted uh, more widely by the time of the conference. Uh, my current intention isn't to uh, boycott the conference. I've got various things that I've been asked to speak at, at and around the conference, and I uh, intend to do that. And I'll uh, do what I can to continue making uh, the case for uh, good, uh, freedom-loving Conservative policies. The Prime Minister announced earlier in the summer that he intended to make COVID-19 vaccination mandatory to access certain venues like nightclubs and cinemas in order to increase the take-up amongst younger people. And the, the amount of young people taking the vaccine doesn't seem to be as high as in other age groups. Again, do you agree with this measure? Uh, no, I don't. I think that uh, medical interventions or vaccinations or other treatments have got to be a matter of personal choice. Uh, clearly, uh, the vaccines that were developed uh, very rapidly seem to have a very good efficacy in preventing people from getting very seriously ill with COVID. We do also know, though, uh, that they uh, cause some quite serious adverse reactions in a small percentage of cases. We've just seen the a uh, case of a, a relatively young uh, BBC presenter who died uh, as a result of uh, blood clotting that followed from uh, the COVID vaccination. Uh, so uh, whilst you know, I think for people who are more vulnerable and the degree of vulnerability increases markedly the older people are, uh, there's a very strong and obvious case uh, for uh, vaccination. I'm 54. I took the view that it made sense for me to get the uh, vaccination uh, earlier in the year. Um, but I certainly don't think we should be trying to coerce people uh, who should be balancing those uh, questions of risk themselves. Do you think there's ever a point at which public health should supersede liberty? I, I think that there probably is. Um, this is you know, it's a fascinating and important question. Um, I don't think um, many people would say that liberty is an absolute. Uh, there are circumstances which we all accept that uh, government or, or other authorities might exert some uh, control. You know, an obvious example is uh, when there's a, a, a bomb uh, discovered in a, a car in a, in a street and we uh, pretty much accept that it's uh, reasonable for the police to cordon off the, the street whilst an action is taken. 
but I, I think the experience of the last 18 months uh, really has uh, forced people to start to uh, interrogate this question in a little bit more detail. It's one thing uh, to have liberty taken away uh, for a very short and specific period of time for a very specific purpose. In March 2020, we were told that there was a very serious danger, the NHS could be completely overwhelmed very quickly, that people might die both of COVID and of other conditions because of that. Uh, and we were told that there was a case for a three-week uh, lockdown uh, during which urgent action would be taken to increase NHS capacity. Uh, and we saw those Nightingale hospitals uh, put in place. They were uh, virtually unused as it happened, uh, but that additional capacity was put in place. That was answering the uh, purpose uh, that had been articulated for that original uh, lockdown. Uh, we then saw mission creep to the extent that uh, it was uh, often uh, seemed to be the case that uh, ministers were, were actually looking to eliminate uh, COVID uh, completely. And if it meant that people couldn't see their families, uh, people couldn't start relationships, uh, people couldn't have uh, Christmas together, whatever it might be, then that was the price worth paying. So, you know, I, I certainly would be prepared to accept there are times when uh, for a short period, uh, for a very specific purpose, you might have some constraints put on freedom. Uh, but the idea that you would have a whole new um, approach to life where government uh, indefinitely uh, would uh, constrain people's freedom to make their own decisions and run their own lives um, in order to try to eliminate a virus, um, all of the evidence I think we have to say now is that lockdowns don't actually work in uh, eliminating the virus. You need to look now at what's happening in New Zealand and Australia, which uh, completely cut themselves off uh, from the world and haven't managed to uh, avoid uh, the growth of uh, either COVID-19 or indeed uh, the Delta variant of COVID. Uh, so, you know, I, I certainly think we need to ask very serious questions uh, before allowing government to take that kind of over our lives again. Well, you just mentioned there the actions taken in Australia and New Zealand, and in particular in the last few weeks, they seem to have taken an action that's very drastic after just one or two cases being discovered. Uh, full regions and the, even the whole country has gone into full lockdown. And some of the responses to that have been just extraordinary, really. The, some area, one area in Australia, notably, going as far as to put down rescue animals uh, so that people don't travel to go and uh, collect them. I mean, it, do, you, do you worry that such draconian behaviour might migrate over here if there is another lockdown? Well, I mean, we've had some pretty precavia uh, in the United Kingdom uh, over the course of the last 18 months. Uh, it's important that we remember some of those uh, instances of uh, people being um, uh, arrested or threatened with arrest for sitting on a park bench. Uh, the two women who'd gone for a socially distanced walk in the uh, Peak District uh, who were um, uh, harassed by a police drone um, when clearly they were doing no uh, harm to themselves or to anybody else. There were many examples. In Grace Manchester, there was a, an instance where a, a small child's birthday party that was going on in the front garden of their home was broken up by the police. Uh, so 
um, it's, it's obvious whether you're in the United Kingdom or Australia or wherever, uh, there are people who will take these things to absurd extremes, who um, will allow uh, the exercise of extreme powers to um, get out of hand. Um, so, you know, I, I think we've had plenty of uh, wake-up calls over the last uh, 18 months. People really ought to understand uh, that liberty is a very fragile, uh, very precious thing. And unless people uh, stand up for it and stand up for their own human rights, uh, then uh, some authorities uh, will take things to uh, outrageous extremes. I'd like to move on to, to look at another aspect of the, the COVID restrictions at the moment and uh, to look at uh, one of the worst affected sectors throughout the whole of the pandemic has been the travel industry. And your, your constituency is very close to Manchester Airport, the third busiest airport in the, the whole of the UK. What, what impact has that had on the local economy where you are? It's very difficult to know, of course, we're, we're still um, in the uh, furlough uh, arrangements. There are a lot of people whose jobs have been uh, protected to a degree by uh, furlough arrangements uh, that will wind down during the uh, course of September. Um, and I think the effect may become uh, more painfully apparent uh, at that point. Uh, but clearly the uh, airport and aviation sector uh, massively important for the local economy here, uh, but also for the wider Greater Manchester area and the whole of the northwest of England. It's a big economic driver. And that uh, international connectivity, uh, critical for many, many different businesses and industries and exporters and, and so on. Uh, so, you know, the effects will be uh, quite considerable unless we can get things moving again and get things moving quite uh, soon. I, I fear that we've already lost a very large part of the uh, summer um, tourism market, uh, which was something that a lot of the aviation industry was, was desperately hoping to uh, get up and running. Uh, but uh, we really need some clarity and some common sense and getting rid of some of these excessive and excessively expensive tests uh, that people have to take uh, would be a very important step. And of, of course, uh, one of the remaining restrictions still in place around international travel is the traffic light system. And over, over the last couple of months, there have been some serious issues around the allocation of certain countries, which category they should be placed in. Do you think it is an effective enough system at keeping the virus out, out of the country and pre preventing other variants from entering the UK? I, well, I think what we've seen in international sense is that you can't uh, keep the, from uh, moving around the uh, population uh, across the world. And you know, again, Australia and New Zealand, which effectively had closed borders uh, for the last uh, 18 months, haven't kept the Delta variant out of their countries. Uh, for a country like the United Kingdom, uh, we are very connected, we're very international, uh, we trade a lot with the rest of the world, we travel a lot uh, around the world. Uh, and I don't think it's realistic to think that you could close our borders in the way that the uh, Australians have done uh, in, the, in the United Kingdom. But uh, uh, I, I think also, we, we need to again recognise uh, the benefits of the vaccination programme for those who are most vulnerable um, are, are to give the individual protection. Uh, so if we are much safer and the 
number of people getting very seriously ill is much lower than it was, the number of people dying is much, much lower than it was, um, then we ought to be ready to take some of the benefits of that protection uh, by uh, opening up and, and living life again. Now, I'd, I'd like to move away from looking at the COVID restrictions and look a little bit more into your role as chairman of the 1922 committee. Now, for, for listeners who aren't fully aware of what the 1922 committee is, can you outline what it does and what some of your responsibilities are as its chairman? Yeah, really, the 1922 committee is the Parliamentary Conservative Party. And you know, we just happen to have a, an interesting, quirky, historical uh, name, uh, which uh, arose from the fact that it was the uh, conservative intake from the 1922 general election, which first uh, formed the committee. It gradually uh, developed to be a committee of all conservative backbench uh, members of parliament. So we have a, a number of different functions. Again, I guess um, by evolution, uh, we've, we've added uh, various things uh, over the years. The core of it really is keeping the backbench uh, Conservative MPs in touch with the leader of the party, in touch with uh, members of the cabinet, or if we're in opposition, obviously the uh, leader of the opposition, the shadow cabinet. Uh, so uh, a lot of communication, whether it be bringing um, the prime minister and other ministers to come and speak to colleagues and take their uh, questions to be uh, exposed to a little bit of scrutiny in a more private environment. Um, than uh, would happen in the Chamber of the House of Commons, for instance. Um, but also, we have an elected uh, executive. There are 18 uh, members of the executive, six officers uh, and, and 12 other executive members. So we are, in a, in a sense, the elected representatives of our colleagues, uh, which I, I think gives us a, a role in expressing the views, the concerns, raising issues, internally with the leader of the party, with the chairman of the party, um, with the chief whip. Uh, every Wednesday after the main meeting of the 1922 committee, uh, I and the other officers of the 22 will go and meet with the chief whip and we can have very full, wide-ranging uh, discussions uh, passing on concerns that have been raised in the executive or in the main meeting. We then have taken on some other functions as the the Conservative Party has now got a, a constitution uh, since uh, I think it was 1998. Uh, the role of the 1922 committee was codified at that point in regard to leadership elections and boasting confidence in leaders of the party, which has kept me busy on one or two occasions uh, in the last uh, 11 years that I've been chairman of the 22. And we also, uh, now that the House of Commons elects uh, the members of uh, parliamentary select committees, uh, that's a function that we undertake as well. So we've got a, a sort of odd mixture of different roles, but at its core, it's about representing the views, concerns, interests of backbench uh, Conservative MPs uh, internally uh, to the uh, leader. I often say to people, the chairman of the 1922 committee, who normally will see a conservative prime minister or leader on quite a regular basis and can have private conversations, is the only advisor that a conservative leader uh, has uh, whom the leader hasn't chosen himself or herself. And I think that's quite a good thing to have that 
private uh, channel of communication. Uh, and you know, none of the three uh, Conservative Prime Ministers with whom I've dealt uh, over the last 11 years uh, has ever had a problem with um, anything that we've discussed leaking, uh, finding its way into the press. They know that it's a completely private conversation. Uh, and to, to be able to have that conversation with somebody who will be prepared uh, to tell you things you don't want to hear. Uh, I think is is quite valuable. And I mean, you mentioned there the private relationship that the chairman of the 1922 committee has with the party leader, and in this case, it's the prime minister. And that that position became most notable to the public during the 2017 to 19 parliament, when, of course, Brexit caused so much tension across the House of Commons and really divided the Conservative Party. How difficult was it to communicate the parliamentary party's views to Theresa May and her government when MPs were so divided and there was such clear opposition to her plans? Well, what I've always tried to do uh, is give uh, party leaders as good a sense as I can of the balance and the spectrum of opinion within the parliamentary party. So, of course, I will sometimes say, this is what I think. Um, and I, you know, I think that's quite important if you're going to be um, trusted to be uh, objective as well, uh, then making it clear what um, my own views are, um, I, I think is a part of that. But there are times when I'll say, well, this is what I think very strongly, but you know, I, I've got to say that 75% of colleagues um, take a different view. Um, and you know, the government will get whatever measure through very easily because of that. Uh, so. Uh, of course difficult when there was that massive uh, rancor and uh, division, uh, but in a way more important than ever to be able to give uh, both a sense of the balance of opinion uh, and also from time to time to be able to try to help to find uh, a way through. And you know, I told Theresa May straight away when uh, she came back with her uh, draft withdrawal agreement uh, that the Northern Ireland Protocol was simply not going to uh, be acceptable to the, to the House of Commons. Uh, and, and then I tabled my um, amendment uh, in, the, uh, in 2018, uh, in the January, I think it was, uh, to try to uh, indicate that the House of Commons was prepared to support the withdrawal agreement if you had alternative arrangements for the Irish border in place. So uh, I guess they were very unusual circumstances, but being able to try to find a course which would bring almost all uh, Conservative colleagues together uh, was, a, you know, I, I hope was a, a helpful contribution. And the, those alternative arrangements that you proposed to the withdrawal agreement, at the time there, there seemed to be uh, a lot of speculation about what alternative arrangements really means. I mean, at the time there was the backstop, which was flatly rejected. But since then, since Boris Johnson uh, took over as prime minister, he's uh, re replaced the backstop with an arrangement that has caused a number of issues around the Irish border and trade from the island of Ireland to Great Britain. In your mind, when you tabled that uh, amendment, what was your view of what the alternative arrangement should be? Well, I, you know, I think an awful lot of this is about goodwill on both sides. And some of the problems that have occurred, I think, are because of the EU side uh, interpreting the agreement in uh, a rather uh, unhelpful 
uh, way and maximizing the number of controls and inspections which are undertaken. If you uh, were able to assume uh, a degree of goodwill on both sides that there was a, an active uh, effort to make the border as insignificant as possible, uh, then that would be really quite easy to achieve. Certainly at the moment, uh, all of the uh, regulatory standards for the UK are the same as those in the EU. Uh, there's no uh, fundamental reason why goods uh, crossing into uh, Northern Ireland from mainland uh, GB uh, should be uh, subject to regulatory inspection. Uh, and you know, most borders, including the Irish border, operate in a, a, a very um, uh, low-key way uh, most of the time. And nearly all of the traffic that crosses that border, for instance, uh, is um, regular um, big uh, movements of, of goods, a huge amount of Guinness moving from the Republic to uh, Northern Ireland, for instance. And the hauliers who are moving these goods simply uh, fill in the paperwork online. There's uh, only an inspection uh, at or near a border. If there's any reason to suspect that there's uh, some uh, a bad uh, practice uh, going on, somebody's trying to smuggle something or whatever. And that's normally an intelligence-led uh, approach. So you know, I, I think all of this is eminently uh, doable. Uh, there just has to be a real will to make it work, and I hope we'll get there. And just to come back to looking around at your role as the 1922 committee chair, in December 2018, when the Conservative MPs held that no confidence vote in Theresa May as party leader, how, how difficult was that meeting that you had with her to inform her that the required number of signatures for such a vote had, had been met, and especially given that you'd both been uh, elected in the 1997 intake? Yeah, uh, and I, I guess I developed quite a good working relationship with uh, Teresa. I'd known her for a, a long time. She'd say both elected at the same time. I'd served on a shadow ministerial team uh, with her many years ago uh, as well. Um, but, you know, these are uh, obviously sort of rather painful and uncomfortable mm. things to, uh, to broach. Um, I, I guess it was not a huge surprise at that point. There had been a group of colleagues who had been openly campaigning to try to get uh, the requisite number of uh, letters written to me calling for a no confidence vote. Uh, so, you know, I guess uh, everybody thought it was likely to happen at some point. Um, I just happened to be the, uh, the, the, the person who was uh, privy to the facts when a lot of other people in the media and in uh, Parliament were uh, just speculating. And you know, I've said before, it was uh, a remarkable thing to witness uh, one or two of my colleagues appearing in the media saying that they'd written uh, calling for a vote of no confidence when in fact they hadn't. Um, and, uh, uh, so the people who were trying to keep a tally uh, informally uh, were basing it on uh, very imperfect <laughs> data. Um, and you know, even on the day that the threshold was, was crossed, uh, as I've said before, um, I was given what I knew was the 
uh, I, I think it was 48 letters I needed at the time to cross the threshold. I was given what I knew was the 48th letter uh, by a colleague in a corridor in the House of Commons. I went back to my office and sat down to collect my thoughts and start planning what needed to be done. And just a few minutes later, another colleague knocked on my office door and came in and said, oh, uh, Graham, that uh, letter I gave you a couple of weeks ago, uh, can I have it back? I don't think it's the right time at the moment. So in the course of a day, we crossed the threshold and crossed back again. Right. Uh, and, uh, and, and then again, crossed the threshold. So it was a, it was a very uh, odd uh, time. Uh, and uh, yeah, I suppose uh, I generally cope quite well with stress, but it was a little bit stressful. Mm -hmm. and, and when Theresa May did re resign in June uh, 2019, many suggested that you should throw your hat in the ring for the party leadership. Why, why didn't you enter the contest when there was public support for your candidacy? Well, I, there wasn't sufficient support, I think, was right. the... Uh, because of the, the job that I've been doing as chairman of the 1922 committee, uh, I clearly had to maintain complete impartiality. Mm. Would have been entirely wrong for me to go about canvassing uh, support amongst uh, Conservative MPs if I had been planning to uh, stand uh, when, if and when any vacancy arose. Uh, but then uh, when I went to see the then Prime Minister Theresa May at number 10 to agree a date for her to stand down, uh, she put me in a rather difficult position uh, because she said, and before you leave this building, uh, you need to announce whether you're going to be a candidate or not. And the reasoning was, was, was not, uh, not crazy. I think the reasoning was that they wanted to put out a, an agreed statement of what the process for uh, an election for a new leader would be. Um, so you know, at that point, I just thought, well, the only sensible thing for me to do is to recuse myself uh, from the process uh, and I'll just go and talk to some colleagues and see what the demand is. And it seemed pretty clear to me that Boris Johnson was going to win uh, hands down. And I uh, therefore didn't think it was uh, worth entering the contest. Uh, I think the result was pretty much what I expected. I'd like to finish this interview by just coming back to looking at uh, the legacy of lockdown and what the longer lasting uh, lessons of the restrictions will be. And just wanted to ask you, do you think lockdown has made us, as the public, reassess our relationship with the state and rediscover our sense of personal responsibility after we have been placed under such stringent restrictions for so long? I think it's a complete mixture, uh, Nathan. I, I mean, I've been mm. uh, fascinated and slightly alarmed over the last 18 months looking at the different ways in which, in which people have reacted uh, to these sort of extreme uh, limits on their freedom and liberty uh, being introduced by government. Uh, there seems to be a significant part of the population uh, that really quite likes being told uh, what to do in every minute aspect uh, of uh, their lives. Um, I don't know whether they find it um, reassuring, um, but I, I think for many of us, it, it has uh, come as rather a, an alarming um, revelation, uh, the ease with which uh, fundamental human rights and liberties can be taken away, and the uh, difficulty uh, that we see in trying to uh, impose some proper limits on that, and proper scrutiny of what government uh, has been doing. Uh, I mean, it was only last September um, when I 
tried to table a, an amendment in the House of Commons that would require the government to seek parliamentary approval uh, for the exercise of these powers. Nearly everything for the first six months was being done under emergency powers without either debates or votes in the House of Commons. Um, so uh, it's remarkable uh, how uh, readily um, we let uh, these um, freedoms uh, be taken away from us. Uh, so, you know, I, I hope uh, that more people, as time goes on, will start to uh, assess the impact of this and, uh, and really think very deeply about uh, the limits of what we should allow government to do. Okay. So, Graham Brady, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.